Hello and welcome to the Culture File Weekly with me, Luke Clancy, and a handful of audio excursion. This week our ears are in the sound world of the code red endangered curlew. We overhear the musical life of a little town north of Belfast and we take a walk in the park with a Colombian artist aiming to give Dubliners a little lift. Well, a ramp actually. More of that later. But we start with goings-on in the Simmerdim, the Orkney word for the hardly dark days of midsummer. Musician and producer Merlin Driver grew up with the sounds of the now notoriously endangered curlew filling the air around his home on Orkney. As part of his fight back on the bird's behalf, he's now gathered musicians from countries on the curlew's flight path to do a little musical PR, pointing out what the world loses if the curlew loses its grasp in Britain and Ireland. He spoke to Culturefile about an Orkney childhood and the creation of his album of music and birdscapes, Simmerdim Curlew Sounds. But we began with a request. Do you do an impersonation, do you? I refuse. <laughs> I think that I think that really I have never heard anybody doing a, a very convincing and not cringeworthy imitation of a curly. They are one of the special things about their sounds is that it's sort of unrepeatable, especially by humans. I grew up in Orkney and just completely by accident almost I was born and raised in this place where I think that it's right to say that Orkney had the highest density of breeding curlews around the 90s in the whole of the UK so I was sort of just lucky to have been born in this place where they were everywhere it was sort of like a curlew utopia and they were just taken for granted in those days they were just a really special bird that was all around the farm the little farm that I grew up on in this place where we had no electricity in, on, on the farm, on the, on the small holding. So we didn't have distractions from electronic screens and things like this. And we were also outdoors a lot. Curlies were unavoidable. And I think that the fact that we, me and my siblings, grew up in this slightly unusual way, we, all, we also weren't going to school at all. I was the only one to go to school at, at the age of 14. So we were really quite isolated. I think that meant that my personal my personal connection to curlies is very strong lots of birds have really interesting special calls but there is something i think strangely sort of elevated about curlies the curlew doesn't have one hit it has like a, a greatest hit sort of repertoire so it's really not fair to just like play the one they make many sounds but the other famous sound that they make is that the bubbling call, what gets called the bubbling call. This is the sound that the male curlews make around April, May, sometimes into June and later, around the breeding season. And it's sort of, I always think it's sort of like a, a kettle slowly coming to the boil, um, and especially if it's one of the kettles with a whistle on it, and it's sort of like, whoa, whoa, it's kind of like liminal sound, and it's sort of just sort of getting somewhere, and then eventually the kettle boils and bubbles over into this amazing sort of trilling sound. Mark Radcliffe on Radio 2 was talking about the sound the other day and he said, distinctive gargling call. And I was like, that is so unfair. Gargling call, come on. It's like a beautiful, <laughs> resonant, trilling vibrato. It's, um, so, but I'm sure he meant well by it. It's a brilliant impersonation, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks very much. 
I think what we're hearing sounds like a sort of mix of major and minor. Um, I've since asked some people who know more about the mechanics of music about this question because I was sort of convinced it must be a mix of major and minor. I think mostly it is major if we're talking, you know, really analysing the keys. But there are certain things going on like harmonics and pitch variations and things like this and and sliding notes. And I think that the the net product of all of those musical little features results in this feeling of being between major and minor. And I think that is definitely also reflected in the various folklore around curlews and things like that, usually either seen as a symbol of spring or the scene is like a harbouring of death and doom and destruction in a lot of folklore. So there's something really beautiful about the curlew sound which is taken in so many different ways and that is absolutely reflected in all the poetry and music and folklore around them. Well, I heard the curlew's a bad omen And I've rarely heard a strange thing But there's a path that opens through conscience when they're calling and caught in simidim. I had lived with the memories of Curlews having grown up in Orkney for many years and, and specifically the memory that really I could never sort of get past was the memory of lying in my bed at night at this time of year that we call in Orkney and Shetland a simadim, um, which is the, the late summer sort of all-night twilight because of the latitude. Um, the sun doesn't drop too far below the horizon at this time of year, even in the middle of the night. Around this time, they would call throughout the night because they do fly at night, which is another of the strange things about curlies, mysterious things maybe. They fly through the night at this time. The feeling that I remember most clearly is lying in bed, the window open deliberately on the latch and listening to curlews and wanting so desperately to crawl out of the window and somehow become a curlew, but also knowing that I could not and knowing that there was no way that I could do that um, and sort of this beauty and the pain at the same time. That feeling never left me really and then two years ago maybe I started writing a song called Simadim inspired by those memories. I think I, I started doing it as a response to hearing that they were now on this red list of most endangered birds. Above the runway, you'll hear the seven whistlers welcoming all Graham Miles is is a song was a songwriter, wrote many many folk tunes um, around where he lived in Teesside. I, I believe that. The Unthanks have been inspired by many, many of his compositions. And this tune, The Flight of the Curlew, I think it was written around the 1960s, and I had certainly never heard it before. Um, I'm not sure if it's been even recorded or released before. It's, it's perhaps one of those pieces that have been performed in folk clubs and things like that. But So this piece of music, to get that out there to a wider audience, is really fun. The curlew flies, the sky is
One of the musicians, Mario Mortensen, is a Sami musician. I was interested in giving her the opportunity to make a new curlew yoik. Yoiks are these Sami traditional kinds of, kind of like songs. And in the yoik tradition, you don't usually yoik about something, you just yoik it. So it's about sort of capturing something, uh, capturing something's sort of essence. Basically, I felt, so curlews have inspired all this poetry, all this music, and all of this stuff was for us. It was all done for humans. And now they're in so much trouble, maybe it would be a nice idea to assemble other musicians and assemble other creative responses to curlews, and this time sort of for them. Merlin Driver there, and that album Simmer Dim Curlew Sounds, featuring specially commissioned curlew songs by humans, as well as Merlin's curlew soundtracks, can be ordered from Bandcamp. The most visible friction between history, identity and sculpture in recent years has been around removals of Confederate gangsters, of slave traders and assorted colonial embarrassments. But for Paris-based Colombian artist Ivan Agote, the conversation can usefully be about building too. Agote has proposed a gargantuan pigeon for a plinth in New York City, while back home in Bogota he's dressed statues of conquistadors in traditional indigenous ponchos. He's created a faked video of the removal of one French colonialist from his perch in a Paris square. A critic has called Agote the master of the innocently offensive. By next summer, St Anne's Park in Dublin should have its own work by Agote. His landmark commission, Elevation, aims to coax visitors onto a kind of elongated plinth of their own. The artist was in Dublin over the weekend to talk with the public in the park where Marissa Brown brought her microphone. Because after the construction of the My name is Ivan Argote. I am an artist. I was born in, and raised in Colombia and then been living in Paris for the past 15 years. So we are in the southeast corner of St. Anne's Park, which is the site or the place where this commission was uh, set up. I applied with a, a project uh, that I had the chance to get to build soon. This park has the particularity of have these folies, which are like these constructions that tend to be or look like uh, ruins of past either empires, but like they're a lot more fantastic architecture, let's say. And I'm very interested in general in this kind of architecture and this kind of primary architecture because I think it has also it's a it's very um, mystic or it's also charged with a lot of beliefs and you know orientation and it's very uh, kind of also kind of magical thing when i was thinking about this project i was also in mexico and then i was before uh, very inspired by some like mayan and aztec architectures there in some places and somehow they're very close and i, I don't think it's rare i think it's kind of normal because we're kind of same humans i didn't want to propose a sculpture to bring and play somewhere because I think this commission was more about playing with the landscape and when like make it more site specific. I really consider like the physical conditions of the place 
So, for example, this this field is a very flat field, but it happens to be seven degrees tilt towards the sea. It's kind of a beach in a way, uh, green. <laughs> So my name is Karen Downey and I'm the Programme Director for Sculpture Dublin and Sculpture Dublin is a Dublin City Council initiative designed to raise awareness of sculpture in the city and to commission some new sculptures for parks and public spaces citywide. We're here at the Winter Garden, um, part of the Red Stables complex, with his plans on display. And people are coming in. It's been really nice. People are coming in, having a look. And Ivan is here for a few days. And, of course, very, very important for Ivan is to be here and to hear people talking about their place and their park. And he gets to know the place and he feels uh, connected. And this is obviously really important. He's not an artist that just kind of you know, flies in and does something and goes. So he's been here, this is his third um, site visit or, you know, period of time here in Dublin and he will be here many more times before this piece is completed. We're very excited about drawing people's attention to this part of the park, which is a really stunning site, but people tend to just transition through it. So he's really, he's working with a sloped site and he's talking about creating a kind of a, 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 a what, what he's calling an elevation. It's a, really a pathway that moves along a, a, along a level plane. And so what happens is the sloped area kind of falls away on either side and you're left just at this slightly elevated point where you can really just experience this part of the park in a kind of panoramic way and the intervention I think is subtle but has the potential to I suppose affect people in quite significant and dramatic way. So I integrate humor into my work in a kind of very natural way. Humor is a thinking strategy and then it's also a way to deal with problems because let's say a joke or something humorous is in itself a sort of problem. When we uh, find something humorous it's because it makes us think about something. In Colombia we have a very uh, a conflict very present, kind of a war, a war context that politically is also very tense. We confront this kind of hard situations using humor. I like this idea of, I don't know if I get to do it, but I like this idea of approaching, for example, political criticism with not only like confrontational speeches or confrontational point of view, but what if we uh, think of uh, like a tender policy? What could it be? I work with very hard materials on my own concrete steel, but try to approach this idea of like how could these materials, how could they be tender, but also how could the city be more tender and not uh, as aggressive as it is or as stiff and hard as it is. I think, well, I use the medias for different reasons. So, for example, I, I, the films I do, they are related a lot with research, with things I want to know better. Uh, so, for example, there is uh, this film about two antipode places. So this film was about, like, what if I go to the most distant place I can go and then visit and to go to these two places and then see how close they are, for example. So this is like a theory, and then I did research about the idea of antipodes, where is it from, where was it born. In Rome, I'm doing another film, where I actually am in residency right now in Rome, about the obelisk and how all the obelisk in Rome. Rome is the city who has the most obelisk, ancient Egypt, but also reproduce reproductions from the Romans. So I wanted to know how they become, they, they went there, but also how they've been, used through time, no? 
they were ritual actually architecture but they become more like a war trophies and now they become like an archetype of monuments that you can see in you know, Washington or in Buenos Aires like honoring either people dead in a war or democracy or different kinds of stuff. I knew I wanted to generate maybe a point of view so I had this idea of making a path that is and that was the project is making a path that actually it continues straight towards the sea uh, and without going higher uh, at the end because of the lands go a little bit down smoothly you get a point of view and you get an elevation on the landscape there's a lot of beers in this place because there is uh, the island of beers is like a reservation I like also the idea of like kind of when a bird's starting to take flight so you kind of just doing nothing, going straight, without making any effort, and uh, you end up in this kind of high position where you have a very nice view on the landscape. It's not very dramatic, the inclination. So the path is going to end up having about 60 meters long, which is a, it's a long path. But I like also, it kind of becomes more like a ritual. Like in these ancient architectures, they're like related to rituals too. So I like also to generate this idea of, as a folie or fantastically that maybe this path can or bring you luck or you can make a wish out of it and or it's a place where to think no because in a way it's like uh, you evolve into this in your yourself you're kind of going away a little bit from the planet and then coming down Ivan Argote there was talking to Marissa Brown about his sculpture Dublin commission elevation for St Anne's Park Within Belfast composer Anselm MacDonald's devout Presbyterian community, it's determined that music played in church is sung a cappella and uses the psalms as texts. So even though his debut album, Light of Shore, contains music such as Eyewitnesses of His Majesty, an extended solo guitar work with sections devoted to the apostles, the composer is hesitant about using the term religious music. Or more precisely, he's not satisfied with the idea that any of of his music, such as a piece composed using samples of a speech by Arlene Foster or Leo Varadkar or Boris Johnson, is not an expression of his faith, as he told Culture File. I have difficulty with the term, I guess, religious music or sacred music in a way, because um, I believe that all my music is an expression, in a way, of... Um, of religiousness because I'm I'm a Christian and I'm uh, very devoted and um, all of these works are a form of self-expression for me so that obviously is kind of filtering into everything but I don't write music uh, well I've written one or two pieces but I don't really write music for performance in the liturgy um, uh, similar to um, composers like Messian um, but yes that is that is threaded throughout this piece so this piece is based on seven of the apostles of Jesus when you say you don't write music for the liturgy, is that you haven't yet, or there's a kind of principle that you avoid it? I, I think there's a couple of things filtering into it. One is that the the denomination that I belong to, um, which is the Reformed Presbyterian Church of Ireland, um, we sing a cappella, four part harmony, and we only sing psalms. So there's no uh, there's no instruments uh, in our worship. And it means that all the music that is performed is music that is singable by a non-professional congregation. It draws a lot on uh, folk song and kind of older hidden melodies that are familiar to people. So in one sense, in a kind of practical sense, uh, it means that 
I, I don't have any particular interest in writing a mass setting, for example, because um, that wouldn't be performed in, in my church. Um, I, I am very interested in writing for amateur musicians, but yeah, writing, writing for kind of a liturgical setting hasn't interested me particularly so far, and I haven't found a need to express myself that way. If the, the music in your church is of a very particular type and, and takes a very tight format, is it a strange idea then to write music, and, and I know you're avoiding the term religious, but to write non-secular music that is in that same space, even if it would never be performed in the literal space? It's certainly something I've thought about. I think I've come round now to thinking that um, in a way it actually that that really releases me to explore a lot of things outside of that context. And by that, I mean that I know a lot of uh, Christian musicians who are, what they write kind of exists in a hermetic bubble of being written for other people in, in the worship service. And that's where their works are performed. They don't really exist outside of that sphere. Um, whereas the fact that what, it, what we're singing in church singing the psalms and with those melodies and it, it already exists there's no pressure on me to you know have to try to contribute something that i feel would be of acceptable quality for for the worship of god but also i think releases me to investigate and be curious outside of that and encourages me to spread my wings in that context so uh, I, I could see how some musicians might think of it as a limiting thing i find good i find it quite positive and feel that it has prevented me from uh, compartmentalizing myself too much. And how do people within your community, within your church community, respond to your music? Uh, I mean, I'm actually I, I'm married to the minister's uh, daughter, and uh, my my in-laws um, certainly find my music quite interesting. <laughs> it's grow it's growing on them, I think, and they're super supportive. Everyone is very supportive, and you know, really, in, I think, engages with the music. It's not a familiar form of expression i think for most of them um which is my 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 choral works i think are, are more kind of would be listened to twice let's put it that way <laughs> the, the area that uh, that i grew up in in uh, just north of belfast Think, I think it really made an impression on me when friends visited from uh, elsewhere, kind of in the UK or in Ireland, and I realised that, you know, our area was not seen maybe as being particularly safe. You know, I, I remember kind of things which were kind of familiar to me and you just kind of got on with them, you know, bins being piled up at the end of the street and burnt and, you know, the occasional kind of trouble out in the streets and so on. And they were just kind of part of growing up and something I was... Uh, fairly used to but looking back on those now uh, with a bit more maturity it's, it was something that I wanted to musically respond to so the opening track uses a lot of really spiky and aggressive gestures that are contrasted with more fluid uh, gestures and I guess it's that that aspect for me of kind of looking back and seeing something that was um you know that was that was difficult that was troubling but in in childhood was just something that was familiar to me that was where i lived and that was what things were like it made me realize that there might be something interesting for me to say as an artist that would distinguish me from um 
the music that went or or subjects that my peers uh, were writing about because um i had some you know some of this personal experience uh, growing up and it was something that i felt i wanted to um, express This is the calm before the storm. Cross purposes for the search, which was commissioned by Crash. I was listening to it and thinking, what a monument for a particular a year in all our lives it was, from its mood to actually its ingredients. Pump, 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 lick, pump, pump, lick, pump, data, stay calm, stay calm. I struggled with the piece initially because they asked me to respond in some way to the pandemic, which we were still living through, um, and I had been avoiding that. I don't know. This is maybe embarrassing to admit, but I've I, I quite enjoy sometimes the the videos that are made, and they're they're generally actually of political speeches, uh, kind of meme videos on on YouTube where people take the likes of speeches by Barack Obama and turn them into. You know, Carly Rae Jepsen songs or, or things like that. You know, they put them together in such a way that all the words are taken out of context and put together to form some sort of music, which makes some sort of statement. Work. work. Go to work from home. And that, that was my idea, although I feel I had to take very little out of context to actually make my point, um, that I kind of was able to just present some of these sound bites and they speak for themselves. Uh, but yeah, it was very much that almost documentary slightly mocking but also slightly angry format that had struck me and that I thought would be appropriate um, for the piece. And I'm and I'm sorry and I'm and I'm and I'm and I'm sorry and I'm and I'm and I'm sorry. I will never apologize. As it worked very well, is it something that you can take on and use in your music more generally? Like what you learned from making that piece and also its sort of its approach to the world and to politics? Yeah, it, it certainly is. Uh, I feel like, I don't know, <laughs> maybe I was just really frustrated during lockdown. I, I wrote two quite kind of, I guess, furious sort of politically inspired pieces. Uh, the, the other was for the London Symphony Orchestra or, well, members of the London Symphony Orchestra and it was called The Union Is Our God. And it used um, extracts from a speech by Arlene Foster. You can hear her voice kind of throughout the piece, but also I derived pitch content through it and then used it for the flute material. It was uh, the the Union is our guiding star, which was it was back when I think the D the DUP agreed to lend their support to the Conservatives and go into a coalition government with them. That the Union was going to be what directed and 
guided their decisions um, as a government. You know, later it turned out to be a kind of a stab in the back <laughs> from the Conservatives for them. You can engage with it as a piece, but if you know the title, if you know a little bit about the context of the title, then there are extra little nuggets to discover within the pieces. The top one, that's a good thing, not a bad thing. Not a bad thing. Excuse me, where it was is much higher than where it is right now. Anselm MacDonald there and the album Light of Shore is available from, you guessed it, Bandcamp. And MacDonald is one of the composers taking part in the National Concert Halls after Beethoven series this summer. Full details on nch.ie. And that brings to a close this edition of the Culture File Weekly. We'll be back with more upcycled sound bites next Saturday tea time. The Daily Culture File is back on Monday at 6.40pm. And, of course, of course, don't miss an episode of either by subscribing to the Culture File feed wherever you catch your podcasts. Bye now. <laughs>